My name is Shane Anderson and this is Think Digital Futures. We're in the midst of what some people are calling a big data revolution. Computers are capturing information about us and the world around us faster and in more detail than ever before. But we only seem to hear about this when it misses the mark. Like Facebook's infamous experiment where they tried to manipulate our emotions through our news feeds. See, they thought they'd collected so much data on us and our preferences that they could influence our mood by changing what we saw. The incident gave us a glimpse into the sheer amount of data that governments, corporations and organisations actually have on us and what this information can potentially do. But most of the time, big data collection is shrouded in secrecy. We don't know who owns it or for what purpose. This needs to change. I spoke to Joe Travaglia and Hamish Robertson, two researchers who want us to look closer at the social consequences of big data. They're calling for a sociology of big data, but this is easier said than done. Today, you'll be hearing our chat in full. I'm Hamish Robertson. I'm a geographer by background, and I've worked for about 15 years in the New South Wales healthcare system and recently submitted my PhD on the geography of Alzheimer's disease. I'm Jo Travaglia. I'm Professor of Health Services Management in the Faculty of Health at UTS and the Director of the Centre for Health Services Management, and you can refer to me as Jo. I mean, you both come from kind of disparate disciplines, not disparate, but different disciplines. How did you come to big data? I think we've both been interested in the sociology of knowledge for a long time. So in particular, how knowledge is used in relation to vulnerable groups, who's included in data collection and excluded in data collection, how that data is come by, what's the worldview that's contained within any form of technology. And I think for both of us, that's one of the interesting things is how does that worldview include or exclude people? And then how does that worldview make use of that sort of data? And so we started with small data, if you want to call it that, and then you know, grew more interested in big data because it seems to have, at the moment, such political power. Yeah, well, what do we mean when we say big data? Well, there's a number of different theories about what constitutes big data. In some ways, it's small data on steroids, and, and in that sense, it's about the exponential growth in terms of computing technology, but also in terms of the, the rise of sort of digital collection systems. So, for example, not just Facebook and Twitter and all of those sort of social media streams, but also monitoring technologies such as Fitbits, things like traffic monitoring systems, uh, high-definition satellite imagery. There's all of these sort of emerging, highly digitised, highly complex, always-on collection systems which are essentially feeding directly to databases. What are they collecting? They're essentially collecting uh, specified data about particular concerns, issues or problems. So climate monitoring, for example, is is a big area in terms of the big data. So one of the things that we sort of, how we came to the big data um, platform as, as an area of interest was talking about the convergence of, if you like, that sort of technical innovation which is clearly happening anyway, whether we like it or not. And what are the social implications of that vis-a-vis the things that we had had experience of in the past? So we're talking big data as just all the information that all these exponential new technologies are collecting. How is that different to small data? Like, is your Fitbit data just collecting information about you? Is that small data? How do I distinguish? 
It's an interesting combination. Just leaving aside the Fitbit for a moment, but I'll come back to it. For me, the transition from small data to big data is everybody has a medical record, or most people have a medical record. In fact, not everybody does have a medical record, but most people have a medical record. Traditionally, they're on pieces of paper that sit partly in doctor's offices. They might sit, some of it might sit in your specialist's office. Some of it's on the Medicare database. All these bits of information have always existed. So when you talk about big data, when you think about the electronic health record, what that's going to enable is all that data to be collected in one place. So people immediately can see the positives and negatives of that. And it's a really good example. So the positives are, of course, that Theoretically, wherever you are, you would have access to your own data. So if you something should happen to you when you're overseas, they should still be able to plug in and get your data. The negatives are, of course, that that data can be hacked into, people can get access to it. There's questions around, for example, insurance. And as more data is added to it, all of those risks and possibilities come together once that traditionally paper-based data is collected and then you can aggregate up. So not only is it about you and access to information, like your individual Fitbit, but potentially all those pieces of information can be put together to see population-level profiles, risk profiles. The digital world is, is kind of omnipresent in our lives, but we can't see big data. How does it affect us on a day-to-day basis? Like, How does this data impact our everyday life? Well, I think uh, there's two ways of looking at it. One is the fact that you've got the front-end stuff, which most people now are so familiar with. You know, you pull out your mobile phone and you hop onto Twitter or Facebook or whatever. There's a pervasiveness to it, which is clearly there. Now, the issues are already being raised about, say, the appropriateness of some of the algorithms and so forth that are being applied via Facebook or via Twitter or via other social media platforms. Um, so there are concerns about, for example, how do you deal with abusive behaviour online? You know, there's been quite a few discussions about this in recent months and over the past probably year or so. Uh, that's probably going to escalate because of other issues which exist in society. So you've got a connection between, if you like, the technology, the data which is collected or applied, which is essentially in circulation within those environments, and the broader society in which we all live, work, go to school, you know, university, etc. So they're clearly all connected. Um, and then the, the second element to that, I would suggest, is what goes on in the background. So there's been a number of concerns raised in the United States, for example, about the application of algorithms within um, essentially uh, testing or uh, criminal justice environments, so educational algorithms to to evaluate teachers. And the second one, which has been a major concern, is risk management of either people being tried in court or people who are, for example, being put up for parole. So they're being assessed via proprietary algorithms provided by companies who specialise in what they call big data analytics. And there are perceived to be risks with the application of those without any oversight. And also, more broadly coming back to the social environment, whether the social prejudices of people who design and implement such instruments are carried over into the technology. So we can say that, for example, is racial thinking carried forward in an algorithm designed by a person who's you know of a particular colour that's assessing a group who are predominantly of another colour. And that's not the data itself, that's the, that's the people in the data, like the people who own the data and the people analysing it, right? And the mm-hmm. people who create the systems that collect the data. And, and who that- write the equations which they run through the systems which then analyse the data and therefore produce the outputs. 
And one of the interesting ways to think about that is someone was saying that you can look at Google as a search engine, but you can also look at Google as a data collection engine. So people see it as a search engine because you go on and you look for something, but at that very same time, Google itself is collecting data about you, what you look for, what you search for, and that data can be escalated up and again used for ways that we don't can't even really imagine at the moment. Big data in a way is this sort of combination of how we understand data, how we understand technology and the digital world, and then what the potentialities are. So it's one of those terms that kind of crashes together all sorts of issues. But I think for me, the thing always comes back to that idea of who's collecting the data for what purpose, how is it being collected, how is it being utilised, what impact will it have? And your question's a really pivotal one because for a lot of those systems, we don't know yet. It's still in sort of that phase where we're not really sure how it's going to be used. That was the first half of my chat with Joe and Hamish, two researchers calling for a sociology of big data. You're listening to Think Digital Futures. Welcome back to Think Digital Futures. Big data could be anything and taken from anywhere. Some are even calling the massive spike in data collection and processing speeds a revolution in information. But what do we need to do to prepare ourselves for the infiltration of big data into our lives? I'm in conversation with Joe Trevalia and Hamish Robertson, two researchers who want us to think more deeply about what impact the big data revolution actually has on us. Big data in a way similar to small data is you can collect it, but it doesn't. it's not actually knowledge until you present it within a context or make sense of it. So we may have, you know, billions and trillions and whatever of bits of data, but unless some form of analysis or some form of use is made to it, then it's just you know, sitting as zero one zero one zero ones. And you come from healthcare. How do you see this manifesting in your field? In lots of different ways. I think the big discussions and the big risks at the moment are issues around insurance, particularly in the US. What happens if you have your genome done? What happens if people know that you've got a genetic predisposition to a particular condition and then how that might inf- inf- affect your ability to get insurance or your ability to, to get health care. I have seen that in relation to Fitbits, yeah. about data from Fitbits factoring into your insurance plan. Yeah, exactly. And, and part of the thing with data that we all know is everybody talks about it. When you sign that agreement that says, you know, I'm going to upgrade your iTunes or upgrade your Fitbits, everybody goes, yeah, 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 click. But in that agreement is all sorts of questions about who gets access to your data and how it's used. And so I think there's also a question for digital literacy for a lot of people in terms of starting to understand that when you click that, it's not just about, you know, going up to 12.0.1.3 of whatever version. It's also, you may have agreed that that data in your Fitbit is sent elsewhere, used by other people. I mean, at the same time, you don't have a choice, though. If you don't hit no. accept, then well, you don't get access to, you know, Twitter or Facebook. Yeah, yeah, it wouldn't that be terrible. But that's a serious question, though, because that is, you know, what are you prepared to give away in terms of your personal information? And what are you prepared to do without? 
you are involved in a transactional right. process whether you recognise it or not. And therefore, given the fact that we're only in the early stages of this development, uh, it's important to be aware, as Joe said, and to cognizant of the fact that you're engaged in a transactional process. If you're concerned about those issues, which you probably should be, you know, to some degree or another, then you need to be thinking about what's your position within that transactional process. So what would it, uh, what would it look like going into the future? We have to ask those really profound questions. All the things that we've talked about today, you know, it's not necessarily significantly different to the same sort of questions that we need to ask for small data. The problem is we haven't asked those adequately in small data either, but the implications for big data are even more profound because they affect more people. One of the areas that we need to look at is things like, for example, the speed at which technology is developing, perhaps as a, a secondary answer to what Joe was saying is that the level of conversation that we're needing to have, you know, in terms of, say, application to Aboriginal youth or application to people in somewhere like Afghanistan, uh, is that we really need to be having those conversations with a lot more people and a lot quicker and a lot more intensively than we have in the past. You know, we just don't have the timelines that we had once upon a time to discuss, negotiate, debate. What would a sociology of big data look like? There is a seductiveness in big data and in big data technologies. And I think part of sociology of big data is to understand that seductiveness and to see how, what kind of counter narratives we can, we can create that says yes and we need to consider all these other factors. So say like someone in the community was looking at a privacy policy form before they download an app. What, sh- what sort of questions should they be asking themselves before they hit yes? What is it for me? The question is always, what is it that people are collecting from me and why do they want it? It's like anything. What's the risk to me? Part of the mindset is it seems as though you're getting something for free. You don't pay for iTunes. You don't pay for Facebook. But, you know, given we live in a capitalist society, nothing is free. So the question is always has to be, what is it they're collecting about me and how could it be used? You said an interesting example of the way data on you can be used uh, is the way the Nazis used records to identify Jewish people in the population. Without being terrified about it, you know, Hamish's example of the Holocaust is a really interesting one. They used small data technologies there, you know, to identify where Jewish people were, where they were located and how to round them up. Well, big data could do that much quicker, much faster with more people. The probability is probably not high, but you know, it's still thinking about what might the implications be for you as an individual of that data. And I think also, given that we've both we've talked about both the sort of military and the civilian contexts, that we can see that there are sociological dimensions to both of us, and that one of the issues that we need to be thinking about is perhaps even the question: Is sociology enough? Is it sufficient as a critique of what is such a an enormous paradigm shift in terms of the way we live and work and generate knowledge, um, that we need to be considering that that discussion should be broader still. So in terms of individuals, what we're suggesting is they need to be active participants in the data process itself so that they're conscious of the fact, insofar as that's possible, that they, they are participating in this. I mean, one of the things that we, in, in the discussion that we need to think about is the difference between data and information and knowledge. And so thinking about data as little pockets of numbers or, or text, information is that those pockets within a context, knowledge, the definition of knowledge is something that's usable. At the big data, we're looking at large numbers of these little pockets. Then the questions become, how does that become information? How does that become contextualised? Then knowledge is about how is it usable for yourself and other people. There's also a fourth level, which people don't talk about, but for us is it's the metaphysical level, which is what's the wisdom associated with it? 
and wisdom is one of the areas that we need to think about in terms of the ethics of it and the impact for different people. Well, under the big data paradigm, we're also going to need to think about reskilling ourselves. Do we actually understand how to do those kind of analyses? Do we understand what the risks are involved in writing an algorithm which has social prejudices built into it and so on and so forth? So I think that not only is there a transition in terms of the big data revolution coming out of big data requiring of us the ability to cope with what that means and it moving at such a pace that the skills development processes need to be much more critically engaged with. One of the best movies in terms of the sociology of big data is Hidden Figures. It is just quintessentially about big data. It's about the shift in technology. It's about the treatment of individuals. It's about the recognition of knowledge. It's about the role of you know race and ethnicity in society. It's just the most amazing movie to look at from that context. So homework. Homework. <laughs> go watch Hidden Figures. And we won't even go... Although we're both social scientists, we could go into the feminist critique of this as well. And there is there is a feminist critique of this and, and the use of technology. Um, for Boys and toys. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's definitely that. And, and, you know, both the feminist critique in terms of the uses of it, I mean, the, potentially in terms of, for example, in the States, not so much here, but, you know, with, with the anti-abortion lobby, uh, you know, what information about women could come out, how people, you know, we're not going to go all the way to Handmaid's Tale, but the sociology of big data has to be very much about uh, vigilance and monitoring of what's happening with that. That was Joe Travaglia from the University of Technology, Sydney, and Hamish Robertson from the University of New South Wales, talking about how we need to prepare for the social implications of the big data revolution. This has been Think Digital Futures. The show is supported by the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER and broadcast right across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information or to check out past episodes, head to 2SER.com slash think hyphen digital hyphen futures. We're also a podcast, so look for us on your favourite podcast app, subscribe and leave a review. My name is Shane Anderson. Thanks for listening. <laughs>